Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the back half, the New Statesman's Culture Podcast with me, Tom. And me, Kate. Kate, are you going to sit down or are I, you going to I loom, loom uh, yeah, above me? The back half is the appropriate title for me today. Uh, my back hurts. And um, yes, yeah, so now I'm sitting down. But I do have one of those um, 1990s style back chairs, which is fitting with our themes as well, where, where you kneel and it's got like a weird bit for your bum and then you like kneel on this. So there's no back. It's a backless chair. There's no back. And um, they were all the rage in about 1992. And I think they were discredited. But, you know, I've got, I've got one. I got the company to buy one. You're still them. working on 90s. Yeah. 90s science. And it hurts what? in a whole different way. <laughs> What about sitting on a ball? Is that something people I still do? I couldn't sit on a ball because that requires a lot of internal core strength, doesn't right. it? Like what, what is that else what it's is... for? Yeah. Do you sit on a ball to develop your core yeah, strength? Yeah, so you have to develop this ridiculously rock-hard abdominal cave and I can't get one <laughs> no matter how much I try. So I just slump and then stand. But now I'm sitting. Standing is a very... There's a sort of long lineage of, you know, people with their standing desks like mm. I'm... I'm sure I'm going to get this wrong, but Philip Roth, either Roth or oh. Updike, did Dickens do it? One of those. One, Dickens one probably of the big, just wrote one while of the big walking. 19th century, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he just spoke it At all midnight. into his iPhone. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I just need to have like a Alan Partridge style, um, you know, monkey tennis dictaphone that I speak everything into. Well, you have been of, doing that a bit. I have been doing recently, that when I go. You? Yeah, when I go to an interview and I get my impressions. Of you somebody. sent me one of your impressions. What was the impression? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah, sent yeah. me a little voice voice memo because you can be bothered to text me. And do you know the only other person who does that? Who does that? Is a um, Polish builder I know called Wojciech, who never never texts me, but always um, records a little voice memo. It's and sends so it good. Me. This is on WhatsApp. Obviously, um, my friends and I communicate that way now, and it's nice because you don't have to have the the agony and awkwardness of a real phone call where you're kind of worried about speaking over them, and then when they've stopped and what you say next and stuff, because you just do it in your own time. This is the sort of thing that leads uh, older people to fear for the future of humanity that we're, we're not going to be able to be able to have proper conversations anymore but isn't it more human than a text message yeah yeah mm. arguably mm. we weren't even going to talk about we that. weren't going to talk about i was that. i was going to say um i was going to start by saying that it's quite an exciting time in the in the world of culture mm. we've had the man Booker prize shortlist this morning we've got the goldsmith prize shortlist next week we've got the 
Mercury Prize shortlist tonight. The the ceremony tonight. Yeah, sorry, not the ser- not the, the shortlist. Real thing. The the actual winner of the 2018 Hyundai Mercury Prize <laughs> for music. Um, Kate, you've you've judged the prize Have. in the past. What's is there anything? Sort of notable. The strange thing about the Mercury Prize is that the thing that wins is always completely obvious to the judges, I would say, and completely unobvious to the outside world, which is why it attracts such negative press every year about the fact that it's obscure. Right. And, um, you know, well, what what I find really weird about it is that the bookie's favourite is always so far off, even the top three that are going to be uh, decided between. And I don't understand why people haven't put that together and stopped like thinking about the bookie's favourite at all. I mean, who, it really doesn't. So who, who's the bookie's favourite this year? I mean, year? now I'll probably be wrong, but the yeah. bookies, one of the bookie's favourites this year is Sons of Kemet. Yeah. Who, who are, um, are a jazz, uh, amazing kind of jazz group with a um, sort of scronky saxophony kind of wild feel to them. I saw them once in um, a festival in a downpour at night, like midnight, and they were, they're very exciting, sort of tribal sounding band, but they've been nominated a million times because there's often a jazz, a jazz band on there, but it's been, I don't know if it's been very, very long time since a jazz band has won, if ever. Um, So I think that um, it just seems odd that that's one of the bookies favorites, unless, and this, I'm going to contradict myself here, but sometimes the judges decide to award something to something that has been nominated many times and has deserved it. And they've finally done the album that deserves it. So this may be the case with this one. The, the, what usually happens with that in, in sort of prize law, especially in terms of the Oscars is that it gets to the point where it's sort of embarrassing and you have to give them the prize, but unfortunately it's like, their weakest, their weakest. weakest piece of work. Because they nearly, they, they <laughs> happened with Scorsese, Radiohead. I think it? that happened with Scorsese and um, it probably happened with Radiohead. Yeah. It Is it the like, same in the books world? Um, certainly for the, how many people actually bet on these things? I think it's, I think it's probably, I don't know. I Relative to sport, it must be tiny. So I think um, bookmakers like um, Ladbrokes and William Hill do it as a bit of PR because mm. they always get name checked in the piece written in yeah. the Times or the Guardian or whatever. And so, it helps the prize as well to have yeah. the, it's kind of a, I scratch your back, you scratch mine yeah. type of thing. So I, I think it's, um, I think they, they do it probably mainly for the PR. In I'm not sure how they work out what they, what they think in terms of the Mercury. For the booker, they often... <laughs> Sneeze. Bless you. <laughs> <laughs> That's not happening. That's a first. Carry on. Good, good direct sort of uh, aim at the microphone. <laughs> Luckily, we have shields over our microphones to prevent us. Sort of but you know what I did unconsciously really there is I made sure it sounded like a sneeze, just in case it was weird. Because <laughs> sometimes they come up like a cough. I thought there were listeners. It has to sound like a sneeze. We could, of course, go out and edit it back. But, um, <laughs> the the booker they often tend to just go for the one they've heard of, or the or the one that's kind of had the most column inches mm. um but yeah it's never it's never right it's never the right so i'm pretty sure we've just had the book shortlist this morning i'm pretty sure from the long list i'd have to go back and check but i think um sally rooney was was very high up that and she hasn't even made it onto the shortlist. Yeah. so obviously yeah she's not going to win well we can revisit this in a couple of weeks time and prove how wrong we were about our theory that we've just yeah created but i think you're right having I haven't judged anything as prestigious as the Booker Prize, but I think I can see how, from a judge's point of view, you feel like the winner is the kind of logical choice. 
but from the outside it can feel kind of completely random mm. or, you know. and that's one of the sad things about Mercury as well with the young father's year which I was very kind of invested in you know you just knew that as soon as they were announced everyone would be turning off their TVs or people of a certain age and, and sort of bent would be just turning off their TVs thinking this is so typical Mercury's and it's like the reason that one is that we all knew it was brilliant and I don't yeah. think people would think that about young fathers though because they're so obviously so dynamic and there's so much talent there and they're really exciting. Mm. They're not some like, they're not a kind of chin strokey kind of avant-garde jazz combo. They, no. they are, um, they've got a pop sensibility in there. Okay. Some of their stuff is a bit difficult. Oh, so I should correct myself. I have judged something as prestigious as the book. I've judged the Goldsmith's prize. Mm, yes, is, of course. You know, arguably now more prestigious than the book. <laughs> Um, so this week yeah this week we're not going to talk about any of that stuff we're going to um, talk about a film that came out two weeks ago yeah <laughs> and a show that many of you may never see <laughs> so King of Thieves the Hatton Garden movie with Michael Caine and friends and The Clock which is Kristen Markley's new installation do we call it an installation? I think we do call yeah, it an installation so. at, at Tate Modern and as usual we will have our non-aversary for you to Enjoy. Okay, we went to see King of Thieves. Sorry, I'm rustling my papers here. Uh, we went to see King of Thieves. I'm rustling mine as well. <laughs> Let's rustle together. Which, as probably you all know, is film of the Hatton Garden, the 2015, is it? When it, when it happened? April 2015, yeah, Easter weekend. Hatton Garden robbery. This is, I've heard that this is the fourth screen realization of this which is hard to believe two films and one mm. miniseries yeah. where where have these been i haven't i seen don't them. know maybe they were just sort of amateur projects yeah. <laughs> and screened in private houses amdram amdram <laughs> productions <laughs> so it's notable for its cast michael kane jim broadbent tom courtney charlie cox paul whitehouse michael gambon and ray winston and what's the premise, Kate? The premise. Um, this was known uh, at the time as the, the last the last heist of traditional British villainy. You know, it took uh, three years for them to research because they did research this crime. Um, I think they came away with twenty million dollars, twenty million pounds worth of of jewellery, and um, two thirds of that is is still missing. It took place over three days, Easter weekend, twenty fifteen. It involved breaking into the basement of a safe deposit place in Hatton Gardens and um, literally burrowing through a, I think, a sort of 20-inch 20, 20 thick concrete wall and getting all the stuff out. And they did it over three days. And the significant thing was they were all in their 60s. And at the time, um, there were theories put about, there was suggestion that they were Navy SEALs because nobody else but a Navy SEAL could have penetrated that safe or Serbian master like diamond. Eastern European, humans. yeah, I remember that, yeah. Yeah, because of course we have to import all our talent this yeah. day, these days as a country, so we can't even do our own heist properly. Of course these are foreign people and, and we're not going to find them. So they kind of, I mean, although they sort of sprang into action relatively fast to try and find them, the actual crooks went home to like Enfield yeah. and sat around for six weeks counting their jewels <laughs> and meeting up down the pub. Um one thing I thought that was a shame that they, I don't believe they recreated in the in the film itself was that the the way they were finally caught by this uh, elite team of policemen who were watching them for seven weeks yeah. and and, and um, tailing them was that they were in the pub and one of them on CCTV was seen standing up and miming his use 
of the drill that he used to get through the concrete and then going boom, which they then analysed on the, uh, they lip read him on the CCTV yeah. footage and they saw that he was saying boom and that enabled them to swoop in. So do you remember that in the film? Because I don't think they actually no, they did didn't that. they didn't do in that film. in the film. That would have been no. a perfect yeah. comedy moment. Why not? Yeah. What on earth, you know? Yeah. But the thing about this movie is that the poster sort of worked against it at first because it was so the ensemble cast was so dazzling. Mm. It's just these like seven guys just standing there and you think this is going to be a really, really crappy movie um, with an amazing ensemble cast. And and what did we think of it? Well, um, I looked at the reviews of this and it's been roundly yes, slated. Yes, I was surprised. Reviews. And I have recently begun to worry that in kind of parenthood, I go to the cinema so infrequently that I'm just so delighted to be sitting in a cinema or a screening room somewhere um, that I maybe get overexcited about things. But um, I think we liked it, didn't we? It was brilliant. I liked it. Yeah, it was fun. It was really, I mean, I don't think anyone's going to argue it's a life-changing film. Um, but I was very well primed for it. I'd, I'd just been watching Mark Commode's excellent Secrets of Cinema series and his episode Deconstructing the Ingredients of a Heist movie. Then I w- re-watched Sexy Beast, um, which is another kind of one last job brilliant one last job heist movie from from the early noughties directed by Jonathan Glazer also featuring Ray Winston who's in this and this seemed to me I think it's been criticized a lot for neither being a rollicking caper or and at the same time not being a kind of gritty cutting edge crime film and actually I kind of like the fact Mm. that it chucked both of those elements together so it's got a great opening and brilliant slice of six it's uh small faces what you're going to do about it playing really loud over the opening which by the way has i'd forgotten it's got a brilliant sort of bass break in that song it's kind of scuzzy guitar the music's really strong in the film Um, isn't it there's a specially composed jazz soundtrack all the way through it's like very very slick and they do this thing they do this nice thing at the beginning and a couple of moments throughout which again a lot of critics didn't like of um cutting back to little clips of like uh, pulpy 60s crime crime movies, which gives you a feel of kind of some sort of London glam, you know, glamorous London London crime underworld, which you can then contrast to the fairly kind of these over the hill guys kind of contemplating this this job, which is done in a very it's done in quite a deadpan way. Like again, people were complaining that the the crime itself was not exciting enough but actually i really like that one of my favorite things in this film is the fact that they have to they have to they break a piece of equipment in trying to drill through this wall and they just have to stop the whole thing go to like wix or like tool hire hss tool hire or whatever it is get a new one and then go back the next morning and like anyone who's ever done a diy job in their home knows that's exactly what happens you like break your drill bit you have to go back to the, you have to go back to like Leyland or whatever, get a new one and carry on. It's so tedious. You and know they what they that really well. When he bought that replacement drill, you know what name he put down on the receipt? V Jones. <laughs> so they were living in the this sort of strange meta world where they knew that they were doing what was going to end up feel exactly like the perfect heist movie. Yeah. He actually signed his name as as Vinnie Jones. Jones. <laughs> also, the reason I thought that the crime was so brilliantly handled was that these people were super professionals like Brian Reader the um the character um Michael Caine plays he was first arrested at the age of 11 
1971, he borrowed under a leather shop and sold 200 and, and stole 268 safe deposits from under Lloyd's Bank vault in London. Um, and then in 1983, wow. they, he was involved in a heist where they accidentally discovered 145 million pounds in gold bullion in Heathrow, and he went to prison for that. They these people were they were already experts, and then they also in their retirement because they were kind of at a loose end. They read books like Brian Reader read a book called The Diamond Underworld. And Danny Jones, the Ray Winston character, had a book called Forensics for Dummies, which actually appears in the film. And I was like, oh, is that a really corny joke? Mm. One of them is reading a something for dummies. And yeah. it was real, yeah. you know. So <laughs> they did plan this over three years. So of course, when they get down there, the thing's going to be pretty much perfect. Yeah. Um, one of the uh, the problems, there's a, there's a the only character who was never caught is a guy called Basil, in inverted commas. Um, it's an amazing thing about the kind of criminal code, I suppose, that they've never, as far as I know, they've never given any information about who he was. And he's the one who got off with two two thirds of the stash, which has never been found. The safe place itself has gone into liquidation. This guy is out there somewhere mm. in Europe. Um, and he's the amazing. one who's played by a young actor in the in the film. And he's the only one who went in with a wig and a flat cap because he was aware of the CCTV. Now, when I was reading about the heist today, the reason they were caught was that they were all identified on CCTV. Yeah. So Basil surely could have disabled the CCTV the same way he disabled the alarms and got into the building. Did he do it deliberately, I'm wondering? Because he gave himself a proper disguise. Is that a genuine speculation? No, I just thought right. of it today. It's like, yeah. how come all these guys happen to be identified by face on CCTV, yeah. apart from the guy who could have disabled the CCTV, you know? The sort of reason for them not, I mean, in the film, they sort of think, they call him a bit of a nonce, don't they, for wearing his uh, his cap and his wig. So yeah. you get the impression that they didn't do it just because they thought it wasn't old school. To, exactly. You know, yeah. yeah, and it made him made him look a bit. A they, bit but they could have worn, you know, balaclavas or something. That would have been old school. I, guess, I think they but, had like yeah different coats yeah, on or yeah. something like that. But um... <laughs> I, I just realised I read out his in that list of cast. He's uh, Basil is Charlie Cox, so he's the only he's the only one of the main cast that isn't the kind of yeah. A-grade established kind of uh, national treasure. Yes, and he's actually the the one that, that got away. Yeah. I mean, what we should say is this idea you're talking about, the mixture of the the, the tones to it, the mm. kind of caper versus the the grittiness. It The reason it is kind of quite unique is that um, it does kind of play into the idea of like the Lavender Hill mob and yeah. kind of the comedy of it. Yeah. But when it comes to dividing up the spoils, there are, really quite sharp character turns among these men and they're quite unpleasant to watch and it's Jim Broadbent who yes. kind of steals yeah. that doesn't he yeah yeah he's fantastic they're um him and Michael Caine have this real confrontation I can't remember which of them says it I'll have you in chunks yeah <laughs> Terry Perkins is uh I think John Jim Broadbent's character and he was like you know he'd once doused um, a security guard in petrol and waved matches in his face and this kind of thing. Like these were nasty, yes. nasty guys. Yeah. And it's the first role I've seen Broadbent in, which is actually unpleasant and threatening. So I think like in terms of their careers, it's not just a kind of cosy, cosy caper for them to have done. It's got a bit of an, an edge. He's he's the most threatening, isn't he? But they all have an edge of nastiness to them. Mm. Even even the Brian Reader character, Michael, played by Michael Caine, who is the, is the one that you're kind of allowed a bit of sympathy for because it starts with the death of his wife and he's kind of which lone. is all true yeah is it yeah. yeah um and he's um rattling around this sort of quite big house on his own and um you know he's he's a he's a sad he's a sad old man mm. um and he seems a bit more kind of 
he seems less of an idiot than the others in terms of their kind of stupid pranks and stuff. Um, but he has an edge of nastiness to him. Yeah. Um, and and is just probably as untrustworthy as the others when it comes to And so to does it. Tom Courtney, who's really, he plays, um, uh, I can't remember his name now, Kenny, who's the, the sort of lookout guy, who's the driver, who also literally did in real life fall asleep upstairs <laughs> on the job trying to look out the window for security guards. And <laughs> they, Co- they give him two instructions, stay awake and sort out your hearing. Yeah. Head. And he really did have like a failing hearing. And Courtney's, uh, I've seen him in the, he was actually in Unforgotten, which we spoke about once recently. And he he's very good in, in his old age of playing these, uh, and 45 years, playing these kind mm. of um, so-called, like apparently sweet old men who've got a nastiness to mm. them. And there's something about the way he talks and the way he grits his teeth and the way his teeth and his, his sort of lips look when he's like actually got a hardness about him and even in the role of Kenny who's this kind of completely dozy stupid character there's the there's a kind of ruthless undercurrent to him and the, I thought the, the sort of a, the most amazing sort of cameo in it really was Michael Gambon who plays mm. Billy the Fish, Billy the fish. <laughs> who is this ridiculous like waiting for Godot kind of character who has about two words and his hair looks like he's been electrocuted and he's just really like randomly charged with looking after some of the millions and millions pounds worth of jewels. So he's the fence, isn't he? So he's the one who's employed to to get rid of the stuff, yeah. basically. Um, and he has a van delivering sort of uh, fresh fish, which is why he's called Billy the Fish. And in real life, that guy was um, chronic sleep apnea and deafness and incontinence. <laughs> this is, it's all, it's, it was worse than it is in the yeah. film. I mean, that, the, you know... The, <laughs> They do, they, okay, so it's the same kind of comic trope throughout, but there are some, there are some really nice riffs on, on the age of the, uh, of these, these characters, like the, the hearing aid being one of them. I mean, my favorite is when they're talking about how to get rid of stolen loot. And I can't actually remember whether it's the loot from this job or or from a previous job. Um, And they talk about, you know, what about the internet? Why don't you do it online? And I think it's Tom Courtney's character. Yeah, yeah. Oh, eBay. Oh, no, I can't get that on my computer, <laughs> which is very, very accurate about how some older people think of, think of technology. <laughs> he doesn't think he's got the software yeah, for it. Yeah, yeah it's, um, I like the simplicity of it and the fact that, of course, these guys are going to be able to do it fairly effectively. And, of course, the police would find them quite fast. And it's just, you know, they just go home, they wait, that's that. And the police are... These are brilliant. The the only thing was there's like no basically there's no female characters in it no, at all. Absolutely not. And so it's what sort of they, unapologetic about that, unapologetic it? about it. Francesca Annis has two seconds at the beginning yeah. where she says two words and then dies. Yeah. So in order to kind of rectify that a bit, they've made the uh, the elite um, Sweeney style flying squad of policemen. They've made them all women. Yeah. <laughs> and they weren't in real life. They were probably old guys as well. But they're like these beautiful young mixed race ladies. Yeah. <laughs> God, that's so true. I so there also allows the it's God, we should say it's um the screenplay is Joe Penhall, who has um fine Hollywood pedigree. And um it's directed by James Marsh. James Marsh. Who that's did it. the uh, theory of everything. Did he do the theory of everything? Yeah. Wow, I didn't know that. Um I know him from uh, Man on Wire and Of course, um, yeah. The Imposter, both of which are kind of documentaries that um, play with um, real life events and, and dramatizations. But um, Joe Pennell has some fun with Cockney rhyming slang because why not? Um, and and various sort of bits of East End slang. And when they're talking about their 
um, their sort of old days of crime, you know. Again, who's it? The, the, the one thing I find when I'm trying to recall this film is the lines are slightly interchangeable between the characters. <laughs> For any of them could have said this, but it's like, oh yeah, we, we kicked them in the cobblers, um, you know, up the Aristotle, you know, we might have kicked them in the biscuits, we might have pulled petrol on them, but we never hurt them. <laughs> this happened very close to us as well. Our office, the New Statesman at the time was at Farringdon and we had yeah. another office in Hatton Gardens. And I remember um, when it happened and when I was reading about the, the crime today, one of the initial investigations they did uh, resulted in a, a burst gas main, which then caused a huge fire. Yes. Do you remember this? Yeah. And the whole cast and, and audience of The Lion King on one afternoon were made to leave out, you know, leave on the streets and do like a fire evacuation. And I think Mamma Mia as well. And I distinctly remember that happening because we were at work and we knew about this fire because like Twitter was, you know, telling us about yeah. this fire. And that was that was one of the first uh, times these guys had been down into the basement. So, and then we came back after Easter that year, and uh, and it had all happened. So yeah. exciting! I don't think there's anything to steal in the New Statesman's Hatton Garden office. <laughs> Do you have anything in a safety deposit box? I don't. What a weird idea that is. Yes, yeah. uh, seems so the, archaic. So that archaic. You do that, but and and also like apparently that there's a load of stolen. Everyone knows there's a load of stolen stuff being stored there yeah. anyway. So it's like. Yeah crooks and wealthy people are working mm. cheek by jowl mm. um and uh one of the things i was interested to see that was stolen was a titanium handbag given by michael jackson to elizabeth taylor that was among that was among the stuff wow did they get that back i don't know if they ever got that back maybe basil was yes. <laughs> using it basil now <laughs> in the costa del crime <laughs> basil uh i is this, was he actually called Basil in real life? No, you know? it's just a no, name. Okay, yeah. so they made that for the film. Yeah. yeah. No, okay. no, that was the police name for him. That was a police name. Mm. And the the credits of the film at the end, they sort of dissolve the letters. So, and then you have this thing saying best security something in London, as if it was ah, like a kind of acronym. Yes, so an acronym, yeah. 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 Anyway, King of Thieves is, uh, I believe, still in cinemas now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So yesterday morning, quite early before work, Tom, we went along to the Tate Modern and we were the first people to take place on some sofas in front of a large cinema screen where a non-stop film had been playing all night already. So we we turned up, I think, at 9.55 and we watched an hour and 10 minutes of The Clock by Christian Markley, which uh, has already done the rounds a bit, hasn't it? It's been in New York. And um, tell me about the concept of this strange piece of art. So this is a 24-hour video piece that's composed entirely of scenes from films in which time is either directly referenced through seeing a clock or a watch or people telling you what time it is. That's most of the clips, to be honest. And then it's intermingled with some of the clips are more broadly set at that time of day or somehow evoking the passage of time within that time of day. And yeah, it, run, it runs in 
sort of real time so which is kind of a mind-boggling achievement so when you're sitting there and someone on the screen is looking up at their office clock and it says 8:53 you look down at your watch and it is exactly 8:53 so that's the guiding the guiding principle of of the piece um so yeah it is very strange tape modern are doing a couple of 24-hour screenings but for normal kind of gallery times this thing is just sitting there playing <laughs> playing um when no one no one's in there but you can go in in the middle of the night can't you only on yeah only on yeah, only, only on, on those special days only on those on the on the special days oh that's a shame yeah so i mean in an ideal world you'd have it open 24 hours the, the whole time because um um our um film critic ryan gilby um i think has seen more of it than us um i think it's hoping to i, I imagine there's quite a few people who are hoping to try and see see all of it those overnight ones are going to be well booked up though aren't they because if that's the only chance you get to see what's happening at four o'clock in the morning and that the the potential for four o'clock in the morning in cinema is going to be amazing you'll get pulp fiction and train spotting and all the crazy druggy clubby stuff going on yeah so he he actually christian markley um first of all i thought it was quite nice he said um he said you know people get frustrated they feel like they want to see the whole thing and he said he said just enjoy it like if you need to leave to go and get something to eat or go to the bathroom, just it's designed to be dipped. It's designed to be dipped in and out of. You don't have to sit there for, for hours at a time. But he also said that um, um, okay, so there are obvious focal points where there's huge amounts of material to choose from. So midnight, you know, I think you know he's got Orson Welles and all sorts of things happening at midnight. Um, uh, noon, you've got high noon, and then. There's all sorts of like, as you say, kind of club scenes and crimes taking place and things in the early hours of the morning. But he actually said between four and five was the hardest one to film. Really? Yeah. And I would love to see that bit because he said that's when he could bring in a lot of dream sequences. <gasps> of course. Um, so I think between four and five in the morning, if you if you're lucky enough to to see that section, you might see you might see lots of dream sequences. Um, when I first heard of the idea, uh, I thought it was quite poncy. Yeah. And I imagined I was going to go and see a chin strokey sort of thing that was just literally for film buffs. And I was, I loved how, um, I loved the lack of cultural snobbery to it. You it's know, weirdly compelling, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Like, at, you know, just before 10 o'clock, you see the the gates of Willy Wonka's chocolate factory yeah. opening. <laughs> and then I recognized bit. I mean, it says like my, my knowledge of film, but basically I recognized bits from like single white female and yeah. back to the future and stuff like that. And it could be a lot more uh, pretentious than it is and it's it's very funny isn't it yeah it's very there's, yeah there's a lot of humor in the in the edit isn't yeah there? there's um, a whole chunk that's just chosen because johnny depp's london accent is so bad <laughs> i looked that up it's it's um uh what is it it's from hell which is an adaptation of oh, a graphic yes. novel which i have heard of the jack the ripper thing yeah yeah and it's johnny depp and robbie coltrane and, and johnny depp is just talking in this ridiculous uh, way worse uh, than dick van dyke <laughs> kind of totally thing dick van dyke territory um so yeah i mean me and you were sitting there uh, for, for half of it. We we're like, what's that one? Do you recognize that one? <laughs> like, it kind of, you sort of want to go, want to go there with a real, um, with a real film, film bus, buff film bus or a film bus you could go and on you a get film to bus. see i love the fact that you get to see these very famous actors in early obscure roles in like bad rom-coms and things like that and you just you just wonder what they are but there is some system isn't there of working out what all these films are so markley's never released a list there are around 10,000 clips over the 24 hours from something between 3 and 5,000 films and there's a community online 
that have tried to sort of piece it piece it together. So there's a sort of crowdsourced page um, <laughs> with all the timestamps, and then people have filled in what they. Has he not released the, the the titles because he didn't get the rights? That, I think that that <laughs> must be partly it. So he didn't he didn't clear any of these. He's just taken a punt on it. I'm, I mean, it's great. It's worked. It's worked out. But apparently, this is partly why it's free. So museums tend not to charge for it. So it's free at Tate yeah. Modern. Like you can just go. I think that's partly why is that the idea of making lots of money out of it. You might get kind of Warner Brothers or whatever coming. But at this stage, you know, it's won it's won the Golden Lion at the Venice Biennale. Um, it's sold to all these major art institutions. You know, a studio who comes demanding like demanding thousands of dollars for for the for the three Back to the Future clips is just going to look like yeah. an, an absolute idiot. Philistine. Um, so it was, it was um, it has been around for a while. It was um, made in 2010. Um, it took him three years, I think, um, to make. Um, with a team of with researchers. six assistants. Mm. Um, it started, he put an ad up in this, there was a there was a kind of art house video shop in Clerkenwell, which has gone now, and he put an ad up in the window of that for people. Wow. Um, and then once he'd recruited his six assistants, he just got them watching as many films as possible, um, mainly on VHS, apparently. And um, he, um, they each had instructions of how to rip scenes from the VHS. So they did the, they kind of made the clips for him. Um, and he started off saying, get me, you know, bits from thrillers, people looking at watches, countdowns. And then after that, he just, after a while of that, he just said, actually, just get me just get anything, anything with yeah, clocks in it. Anything with clocks in it or with, with time in it. But did he do it before Ridley Scott did Life in a Day? He did, didn't he, in that case, 2010. That was 2011, I think, the Ridley Scott. Right, or, or... which was the thing that was like, again, it, well, that was actually a crowdsourced, um, yes, amazing that. Yeah. film that took place, but it was condensed into a, a normal film length, 24 hours in the life of the world, showing people getting up for breakfast and having lunch and everything. And it had all been submitted by clips of individuals, yeah. it, I think. I mean, I, thought, I've, I had a, a strangely kind of emotional reaction to it because, you know, it made me feel we, we watched an hour of it, mm. and by the end of that hour, I felt like I'd been there for for a day. Um, <laughs> we'd seen we'd seen countless people having breakfast between like nine fifty five and eleven ten or whatever. But we'd seen bank jobs, we'd seen funerals, we'd seen weddings, and it just made me think how huge the world is and like how much stuff is going on at any one time. Like, have you ever flown above like you fly above a huge city like Los Angeles late at night? And you look down at these tiny little cubes that are lit up under the houses and you can't even see the end of that city. And then you think this is just one city on the planet and all these things are going on in these houses. All these conversations are happening and all these dramas are taking place. And it just kind of blows your mind. And I think in a funny kind of way, he's he's achieved it. You can go and see one hour of it and you just think the world is huge. Yeah. <laughs> it's exhausting. Yeah, it is. And the the editing really sort of brings that to life. So sometimes he will... Sometimes he'll cut, um, you know, sometimes he'll make a connection between things. So you'll see like several like subway chases mm. all, all together. And then sometimes it will be a kind of complete juxtaposition. So it will be Humphrey Bogart in a kitchen cutting a grapefruit in yeah. half. And it will cut to, you know, I don't know, a, a scene in a house with an inspector asking people to come up with their alibis, which will then cut to 
Denzel Washington in deja vu kind of being submerged under the yeah. under the water in his in his car. Yeah, one person's being submerged under a car at the moment, somebody else is just waking up in another film. And it's just that idea of the how much you can pack into one hour versus somebody who's just asleep throughout the whole hour is just kind of powerful. And he because he's a sound artist, the only um he'd be very well known to people who know about sound art and I'm sure people in the art world generally. I had only had one encounter with his stuff, which was in 2005 I saw a piece of his at St Luke's Church you know that one near the Barbican um called Tabula Rasa which was him basically with turntables like destroying records and Mm -hmm. like scratching what was he there in real life yeah yeah, yeah. he performed it so it was a kind of like noise noise piece which is sort of brilliant at moments and at other moments kind of I felt like it was the most tedious thing I've ever seen (laughs) So he ha- he has a background in in sound, um, and he the other nice thing about this is he really didn't want to like just fade in and out the sound from mm. each clip. So sometimes you get the sound from one clip carrying on throughout the other ones. Sometimes apparently he's actually recorded new audio to go. It ov- felt like some it. of it was unique yeah. to yeah. the project rather than the film that was happening. Yeah, yeah, it's very cool. Were there any? Um, I mean, it's tedious for us to describe the the scenes we mentioned. Johnny Depp. Were there any other bits from the? from the chunk we saw that um, you particularly enjoyed? Well, I enjoyed um, moments of Moonraker starring Roger Moore. (laughs) I mean, I think it just like, this is why it's such a universal project because it's whatever you, (laughs) whatever you grew up with and you recognise just shows your film taste. And then you get, you know, a miserable Tony Hancock being given cornflakes at 10.05, which was just, I loved that bit as well. Yeah, I, I like liked... the scene from the um, the Breakfast Club yeah. <laughs> uh, with uh, Judd Nelson. It, uh, his character is called John Bender. He's just ripping up a book, and uh, he says, "What? What? Are you, what even is this? Mol, Molure? Molure really pumps my nads." <laughs> <laughs> I also wrote that quote down. I think at that moment we both got our pens out. <laughs> um, but there's also a couple of really intriguing things. Like um, there was a film that we both felt like we kind of half recognised. Um, but I looked it up afterwards. It's Charles Bronson, this guy with this kind of thin moustache, oh, wandering yeah. around. But I've no idea what film it Running is. Running on a, like a, on a clifftop. And there's one, he's in, he's in it, he was in it twice in the chunk we saw. But even the crowdsourcing guy has just put Charles, Charles Bronson runs oh, through amazing. it. Amazing. You know, I'm sure I liked, someone um, knows. Nat- a very young Natalie Portman, Portman looking at the clock and saying the words, Shit, it's 10. I have to be there at 10. <laughs> and then you see a blind man running with a stick out of the door of the house that she's in. And I'm just wondering what that was. But that was so deadpan. It's 10. I have to be there at 10. Did you find yourself getting very tense throughout it? Or did you find that actually you kind of relaxed into the I was Yeah, I didn't get tense. I just thought, I, I just found it quite overwhelmingly like packed in that I was ready to go after 20 minutes because so much had happened in that 20 minutes. And you were like, I think we should stay for an hour. I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> but I'm glad I did stay for an hour because... When the, when the hour turns, quite big yeah, things happen. Yeah. Like he obviously has fun with the turning of the hour. So when it became 11 o'clock, there are kind of like dramatic things happening and stuff. And also very undramatic things. So if you imagine that repeated over 24 hours. I loved also the amount, I don't know whether this recurs throughout the whole 24 hours, but there's quite a lot of people sort of correcting clocks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Winding watches yeah. up so that it hits exactly the time that you it happens to be at that second. It was a really weird one, which is a really long shot of like a bunch of monks um, just correcting the time on a clock. <laughs> <It's kind> of, <laughs> for some reason, I found hilarious. But it, it's true. There is a lot of 
there's a lot of humor there's a lot of humor in it and um one of the reviews i read said you would expect this to be kind of quite bleak and depressing it's all about the passing of time yeah. you know which is we all feel is a big burden but actually it's weirdly uplifting it's uplifting because of the amount that he's packed in yeah which yeah. is what, what we want to do with life yeah <laughs> and what we try to do with this podcast <laughs> i really recommend you go and see it the clock is on till 20th of january at tape modern um and there are a couple of uh, 24 hour screenings within that but it's free um it's free throughout we're going to stay in a cinematic yeah mold Mold? Mode? Are we going a to mode. be in a mold or a mode? A mode. Or a commode. <laughs> um, in a commode. In a commode. <laughs> well, this podcast room is yeah, not far off. <laughs> For our non-aversary, which is our celebration of a sort of oddly shaped anniversary of a not particularly significant cultural event. Kate, what mm. do we have this week? So um, in September 1999, um, which according to my maths is... 19 years ago. Is that correct? Yeah. Jamie Babbitt released her film, But I'm a Cheerleader. Uh, Jamie Babbitt is also famous for her lesbian movie, The Itty Bitty Titty Committee, <laughs> and for directing things like Gilmore Girls and Malcolm in the Middle. So for some reason, even though it came out in September, we saw this at university, which would have been two th- end of 2000. So, And it was one of the films of our defining of our, our first year at university. Um, it is about a 17-year-old girl who's a cheerleader and who has a boyfriend, a football player called Jared, and she doesn't enjoy kissing Jared and she prefers looking at her fellow cheerleaders instead. So combined with the fact that the the girl is a vegetarian and likes Melissa Etheridge, her family and friends decide that she is in fact a lesbian and they send her off to a camp to basically beat her homosexuality out of her mm. um, called True Directions, where she will she will reorientate. And the person who helps her to get access to this camp is a, an ex-gay called Mike, who's played by RuPaul, who comes to the house looking, you know, as macho as RuPaul could look and sort of says, you know, really, really, Megan, you, you have to go and change yourself. So it's a very, very surreal, um, it's like a John Waters film. It's shot in lurid lime greens and pinks and, and yellows. And it's extremely bizarre because she goes to this camp, this kind of Christian style summer camp to become straight. And she's put, of course, into a dormitory with a load of other girls who are also lesbians. And then on the other side of the camp, there's a dormitory full of boys who are also gay. And of course, the inevitable happens. And it's a very, very funny, very sweet film. And it probably wouldn't like be very funny now because it's sort of one of those things a bit like scary movie that came out at the time that the jokes that it made seemed quite bold at the time mm. because I don't know I mean they'd, they'd be seen as very unpolitically correct and unreconstructed and reconstructed now but I remember seeing it when we were like 20 and just thinking this was quite groundbreaking that she has to go to true directions to beat her homosexuality out of her. And has it had an afterlife? It's think? just one of those like, films that everyone who saw it remembers and thought right. was great, but it's not really talked about. It's kind of a bit of a cult film. And um, yeah, it just amused us very much. And I might have to go back and see whether it holds up at all. And I assume that it was just in that special little pocket of time when uh, you could... Remember how Scream came out? And yeah. Scream seemed really clever because it was referencing other yeah. horror movies. Yeah. And there was this little pocket at the end of the 90s where humor seemed extremely sharp and probably wasn't in retrospect but everyone was caught up in it at the time yeah that's that's true and you had some quite you also had some quite big mainstream films that were deploying some quite sharp 
yeah. sharp humor like that. Yeah, but I mean, Scary Movie doesn't work at all now. Yeah, but that had that had a guy in a wheelchair in it who was a really unpleasant character, which right. at the time was was quite revolutionary yeah. because they would always have the guy in the wheelchair as being like a very sure. sort of saintly character and stuff. And this mm. one was just horrible. <laughs> that's kind of that's kind of what you get in this. But it's worth rewatching just to see um, the ex-gay Mike as well. <laughs> Played by RuPaul pre pre uh, Drag Race. Okay, so um, happy nineteenth anniversary to But I'm a Cheerleader. Thank you for downloading this episode of the Back Half. Uh, we've been edited by Caroline Crampton. We've got a really good issue of the New Statesman this week. We have. So you, you should buy fat. it um, at your local WH Smith. I won't bore you by telling you what's actually in it. But, um, but next week's is fat too, and the one afterwards. This time of year is the fat issue. Two fat ones. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> not all just advertising. So I'm not trying to con you by saying it's an extra like 18 pages of adverts, which is also true. But some of the adverts are enjoyable, some are less so. Which ones did you enjoy? Oh, I can't say. <laughs> I couldn't <laughs> wouldn't want to ruin the content say. at this stage. And we're going to leave you with... With a groovy tune called Godspeed by the groovy band Pistol Jazz. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.